Passionate, driven, enthusiastic, euphoric. This is who we are as entrepreneurs. But how we leverage these incredible attributes to dream and build businesses that scale and grow is what this podcast is all about. Hello, I'm attorneypreneur Josh Brown, and welcome to Franchise Euphoria. Hello, everyone. Josh Brown here. Thrilled to be back for another episode of Franchise Euphoria. Hope you're doing swell. So this episode is going to be a little unique, a little different. It's going to be me, but there's also going to be a recording uh, that I'm going to play for you that I think is going to be very, very instructive for you. I'll tell you, the... Um, the whole reach of podcasting is 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 quite amazing to me. I know I've been uh, doing this podcast now for about a year and a half or a little bit more, and uh, it's been downloaded in a hundred countries and thousands and thousands and thousands of times, and has really opened up a lot of interesting opportunities for me and doors and, and, and connections and so forth, all by just me speaking into a microphone and putting it out to, to the world. So, um, really, really been, been, been really, uh, shocked to a certain degree, um, how far the reach has been. And one, one thing that, that just happened recently, which ties into this episode is I did a, uh, podcast. Uh, I was asked to be on a podcast called the enchanting lawyer. It's uh, Jacob Sapochnik, uh, has that podcast. He's an uh, immigration attorney out in California, great guy. And he reached out to me to have me on his show to talk about my story. Um, what I do, my focus on franchising and and so on and so forth for his, for his podcast. And I, and I do a fair amount of podcast interviews myself and I really enjoy doing them. Well, after I did Jacob's interview, um, I got several calls from, from different people. One of the calls was from a Oregon legislator and this legislator representative, um, Shemaya Fagan left me a voicemail and said, well, this is going to be probably one of the most unique calls that you get. And she told me how she was a representative in Oregon. She was working with, um, she had several McDonald's uh, franchisees uh, who were part of her constituency, and she was working on a franchisee bill of rights for the state of Oregon that would really be a first of its kind um, across the country. Certainly there are statutes and franchise statutes that are in a number of states and we've got federal law that, that oversees that. Um, but in terms of in terms of an actual franchisee bill of rights, this was going to be a first of its kind. And she wanted to know if she could send me a draft of the legislation and get my input. So of course I happily said yes. And she sent me the legislation and we had, um, uh, several times to talk over it. And I, I, I gave her my thoughts, my opinions, whatnot. And then she asked me if I'd be interested in testifying before a committee before the Oregon legislature. Well, I did so, and I took some time to prepare some remarks and, and then went through the experience of not only testifying, but answering a lot of questions from the various committee members. And after I did that, I started thinking, man, this would be really, really instructive for people who are 
looking to buy a franchise or looking to get into franchising because we really touch on a lot of the hot issues um, with regard to franchises. Um, and you'll see through this, uh, through, through the recording, I do get some hot questions uh, back at me. And so this should give you some various perspectives from which you can, uh, you can attain the information and, and, and really make you think about the whole franchise space. I mean, as we all know, Franchising is very, very different from a regular small business. Uh, it's different in terms of how it's regulated. It's different in terms of how long you're tied to the franchisor. It's different in terms of how you pay people and your relationship to the larger franchisor and their control over how you operate. It's different in terms of restrictions um, that they can place on you once you leave the system or uh, if you're forced out of the system. Uh, or the agreement ends. So there's lots of factors to consider. And I try to touch upon those um, through this podcast. And I just think that this testimony that I give before the Oregon legislature, I think touches upon a lot of those points and really where I feel the state of franchising is right now. So without any further ado, um, here is my testimony followed up by questions um, from various members um, of the Oregon uh, committee. Hope you enjoy. And uh, if you have any questions for me as a result of listening to this, feel free to email me at josh at indy, I-N-D-Y, franchiselaw.com. Good morning, Chair Holdy and members of the committee. And, and thank you for the opportunity for me to share my thoughts and experiences uh, here this morning. Uh, again, my name is Josh Brown. I am a franchise attorney with my own franchise-focused law practice located in Indianapolis, Indiana. I've been a practicing attorney for approximately nine years, and through the course of representing many people in the franchise space, I've seen both the benefits and burdens of the franchise model. I've had the great fortune of helping many people work through the process of buying a franchise. I've assisted franchise owners, otherwise known as franchisees, in legal and business issues. I've helped individuals sell their franchises and worked with entrepreneurs to assist them through the process of turning their business into a franchise. So I've seen and worked with many in the franchise space and not just from the franchisee perspective. Franchising in its purest form, in my opinion, is really a brilliant mechanism because it allows a business owner to build and grow a business through the use of other people's capital, while at the same time also providing a great opportunity for franchisees to buy into a proven system and model. Hmm. When most people think about franchising, they first think of McDonald's and mostly think of fast food restaurants in general. But the realities of franchising, though, go much deeper and broader. They expand across just about every economic sector you can think of. It is a multi-billion dollar phenomenon that impacts many in every city, state, and town in America, including many in Oregon. Yet, as franchising has grown in size, number, and influence, so too have the constraints placed on the individuals that buy franchises. The vast majority of franchisees are individuals with one or two locations. These are people that invest their life savings, their retirement, or borrow money because they have a dream to run their own business, perhaps to pass a business on to their children. This is truly a part of the American dream. Yet more and more, 
more, I see daily occurrences where what should be a trusting relationship and operate almost like a partnership between a franchisor and a franchisee in a common endeavor to help each other grow and prosper turns into a nightmare for franchisees. The legal documents associated with a franchise purchase are lengthy, verbose, and filled with legalese. Often franchisors convey a message to their buyers that they should seek legal counsel, but that little can be changed in the agreement so as to maintain uniformity across the system. Territories which should always be protected are often not, which leads to significant encroachment issues and can make it virtually impossible for franchisees to sustain and grow their business. Often when I provide assistance to franchise buyers and franchisees, I'm educating them on things that they long ago should have known about their franchise, but they don't. Many franchise buyers have never owned a business before. They buy a franchise because they believe, whether right or wrong, that they are buying a business that has an established brand identity, proven systems, and the assistance, guidance, and support from the franchisor so that they can be in business for themselves, but not by themselves. However, more and more franchise systems are doing a poor job of delivering on what they sell to the franchisee. They promise the world and deliver very little. Yet the franchise agreements do not provide for opt-outs in these situations. In fact, just the opposite. Most franchise documents specifically state that once the franchise fee is paid, it is non-refundable. Additionally, franchise agreements range from five years to 10 years to all the way up to 20 years in duration with significant restrictive covenants that place handcuffs on those who try to get out of faulty or broken systems. These covenants prevent competition in often stifling ways in which many former franchisees go bankrupt or face the threat of bankruptcy before they are able to move on with their lives and businesses. Franchising is not like a regular business. One significant difference is the way in which a failed franchisee is trapped or limited and what he or she can do post-termination or in the immediate aftermath of exiting a franchise system. To add to this already disparate situation, most franchisees cannot afford a legal battle with the franchisor. It is truly a David versus Goliath scenario where right and wrong ultimately doesn't matter as much because the franchisor can significantly outspend the franchisees and spend them out of the litigation. Most don't even fight. And to add insult to injury, many franchise agreements contain one-way fee-shifting clauses, which allows the franchisor to recover its legal fees should it prevail, but does not extend the options should the franchisee prevail. This, of course, heightens the already risky, expensive, and emotionally tolling aspects of litigation. Now, we all know that franchising will never be an absolute level playing field. Nonetheless, there, there needs to be basic and practical uh, protections that allow a franchisee a fair shot and provide franchisees with reasonable protections against less than honest franchisors. Um, House Bill 3162, I think, provides an opportunity for Oregon to take the lead on this. Several states, including Oregon and Indiana, have franchise statutes. But this franchisee bill of rights is necessary to help further protect Oregon citizens that risk their capital, their life savings, and their retirement to help ensure that they get a fair shot at success. Now, I know nothing is ever guaranteed in life or business, but the pendulum, I believe, has swung too far the other way in the franchisee-franchisor context. Simple and common sense protection 
like protecting a territory, a three-day right of rescission with the partial refund of a franchise fee, an opt-out clause if a franchise system materially and fundamentally changes its systems or brand, limitations on restrictive covenants, fairness in attorney fee provisions, rights of association among franchisees, prevention of discrimination against similarly situated franchisees, limitations against franchisors limiting a franchise right to litigate in their home state, and protections against a franchisor uh, preventing a franchisee from selling and profiting from its business are all practical, logical, and nonpartisan ways in which franchisees can better be protected without negatively impacting the fundamental aspects that are a hallmark of the franchise model. Uh, because of all this, I fully support House Bill 3162 and believe it is necessary to help better protect Oregon citizens and franchise owners. And, uh, you know, I think at, at, at this time, I want to, I'd like to make a couple of comments. I know the uh, International Franchise Association tendered a, uh, some testimony and a letter um, against um, this proposal. And I think their opposition, at least as far as I read, really focuses on four different issues. Uh, one relating to suppliers, uh, second relating to territory restrictions, the third relating to renewals, um, and a fourth relating to the restrictive covenant non-compete aspects of franchise agreements. I can say this for sure, that I don't believe uh, those are issues that would have a, a negative impact at all on the franchise model. I know uh, with respect to suppliers, and you guys touched upon this um, a bit earlier, in Indiana, there is a statute, um, the part of the franchise statute, um, that does restrict the franchisor from requiring a franchisee to buy its goods, supplies, inventories, or services exclusively from the franchisor if there is a comparable good that is of the same or similar quality. Now, this is limited if, if the franchisor manufactures or has a trademark on what they're selling, then they're allowed to require that. But absent of that, if a franchisee is able to find a similar good or service of the same quality that is pre-approved by the franchisor, they absolutely have a right um, to purchase that. And there is no negative impact on the franchise. There is not a negative impact on standardization because, again, the franchisor has the opportunity um, to approve that purchase. I think in terms of of territory restrictions, the encroachment issue. I think it's it's an ever pressing issue in franchising um, that people are sold territories, and the type of definitions that are utilized within the franchise agreements are hard to understand, and they are they have allowed the franchisors have have, have been including uh, provisions that subsequently allow them to eat away at people's territories, which is commonly known as encroachment. And this is a huge issue in franchising. And I think protecting franchisees from that is just a basic protection for their investment. Um, I think with respect to um, renewals and with respect to um, non-compete aspects, I mean, I have seen firsthand where you have people who buy into a system and even if they've had a good ride with the franchise and let's say their their 10-year agreement is up and they don't want to renew they're still subject to a post-term restricted covenant 
which usually limits their ability to compete. And the franchisor tries to keep that as broad as possible. I know Indiana has legislation that requires it to be no longer than three years in duration for a non-compete and to be no broader than the geographic limitations of the franchisee's territories. I know somebody had commented earlier about uh, about limiting uh, litigation and about franchisees being able to litigate within their home state. Indiana's franchise statute contains a specific provision that calls for that and actually uh, does not allow for the franchisor to limit the franchisee's ability to litigate in any fashion. Um, so it is not only acceptable to do it, but, but it is being done in other states. And I think it's a fair and practical um, protection for a franchisee. Again, the, I, I do not, as, as Representative Fagan said, I, I do not uh, believe that, that this bill is trying to upend the franchise relationship. We all know, or anybody who's been around franchising knows that it's an unequal playing field. It always will be. You know, the, the franchisor, the person who originally built the business and now has decided to grow it, the true, true entrepreneur who's done that certainly is going to have that advantage. But yet on the other side, when they're selling a brand, when they're selling a system, when they're selling a process, I think it's basic fairness to be able to ensure that that brand system and process is what they say it is. And if it's not, that there's an opportunity for the franchisee not to be stuck, potentially harmed forever, but as a way to potentially get out of the system. So with that, again, I fully support this bill, and I believe it is necessary uh, to help better protect Oregon citizens and franchise owners. And, and I thank you again uh, for allowing me the opportunity um, to, to testify here this morning. I'd be happy to answer any questions from anyone. Thank you. Um Mr. Brown. Questions from the committee for Mr. Brown? <coughs> Representative Barreto. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Yeah, you had mentioned that uh, there are becoming more and more uh, franchisers that I think are taking advantage of their franchisees. And I was wondering where this is a, a business relationship that should be a win-win relationship. And for the franchisor, you know, to be successful, he would need uh, the franchisee to also be working along with them. And uh, I was wondering if there are some bad apples out there that, that uh, um, stand out more than others, and if and if other if the majority of franchisers are doing a good job, and if and if there is needed legislation to just take care of a few. Well, I think we're, I think more and more the franchise model has become over the years attractive. I think the numbers prove that out for a lot of uh, would-be franchisors. What I have seen um, from my own experience is that there are many many franchise systems that have developed over recent years and continue to develop where um, they don't actually have a good enough system down to be able to be a good viable franchisor. And so what happens is the best kind of franchisors to what you said, I completely agree, is when it's more, they're working together, right? The franchisor is providing the assistance to help the franchisee sell more, and that will naturally increase the royalty stream coming back up, up the chain to the franchisor. But what I'm seeing more and more of is heightened um, franchise fees at the outset, which let me just take a minute to explain this, because I think there's confusion on this. Oftentimes people think of franchise fee 
as the entire fee associated with a franchise purchase. And that's really not the case. Every uh, franchisor uh, or most of the franchisors have an initial franchisee where it may be 20,000, 30,000, 35,000, you know, sometimes 50,000 or more just for the right to have the opportunity um, to use the brand, to use the system. Uh, and to expand, that doesn't include if you're buying a retail franchise, that doesn't include the expense to build out the franchise and all other fees associated training fees, marketing fees. Um, and certainly doesn't include royalties that are um, that you have to pay on an ongoing basis. And so the, the, the typical uh, retail franchise can cost upwards of $200,000, $250,000 when all fees are set and done. Now, traditionally in franchising, the franchise fee is not as high, and the franchisors are more focused on providing a good system so that the royalty stream continues, and that's their incentive to to uh, to provide a good system and to assist franchisees on an ongoing basis. What I've seen more of lately are franchisors that are in such a rush to grow that they're essentially charging higher upfront fees. They can't support it on the back end. And so really they're not making their money or the bulk of their money off of royalties. They're really making the bulk of, bulk of their money off of the upfront franchise fees. And the way they make more and more fees is by selling more and more systems. And quite often, these people are really good salespeople and they hire really good salespeople. But, the, but again, to your point, to make the system fully function, you have to have the back end back-end support. So I don't know the breakdown on the percentages, but I think you would be surprised that it's more than you think about the number of franchise systems out there um, that are increasingly trying to grow at a pace faster that they, than they can sustain. But at the end of the day, it's the franchisees that bear the brunt of that. Just follow. Uh, are follow there up. are there statistics out there available so that um, we would have uh, an educated information to to uh, base you know our, our thought processes on so that um, you know we're just not saying there's a lot of franchise franchisors out there that are you know getting a lot of money up front but but also just statistics to show how many uh, succeed how many fail and how many uh, franchisees do well. Well, that's, and that's, again, a very uh, hotly contested topic in the franchise space in terms of success and failure rate. But commonly on, online um, and elsewhere, you'll see a statistic that, you know, 90 plus percent of franchise franchises succeed. Uh, I mean, that's just absolutely false. It's not true. And if you really step back from it, it's really not even possible. I mean, I think that 90% of, of, of franchisees succeed. Part of the issue with that statistic and some of the statistics in general that have been proposed and, and almost have become um, common phase in terms of what people rely upon is that they're, they're not exactly accurate, but they're not exactly inaccurate. So in, in other words, with the statistic, the 90% statistic, one of the things that that statistic does not include is franchises that are resells. In other words, a lot of times people buy a franchise and they may not have success or they may not have, oftentimes they may not have enough capital to get them up over the burden you know, for the first six to nine months. And so they get out of it by selling it to somebody else. 
Well, of course, they, they lose their investment. They have to sell it at a loss. And for all intents and purposes, that's a failed venture. But those aren't included in the statistics, aren't included in the categories of failures. Um, now, on the flip side of that, oftentimes, people will buy a franchise and sell it, and, and they will make money, and it will be successful. So it's, it's a difficult thing to categorize. Um, you know, I think that when it's all said and done, if you look at the statistics, and, I, and, and there are different, I could certainly, you know, get some of those statistics over to you, but it, but again, it depends on the source and who you're looking at. But I think this ultimate success of franchising is on par with the ultimate success of any small business. You know, you have an added advantage with, um, with a good system, a good brand identity, and good support. But there are so many franchise systems out there that I really think the percentages fall within the same level of, of, of any business. Mr. Chair, can I add just quickly, I mean, to your point, Representative Barreto, you know, success or failure in the sense of whether the business stays in business to me is a is one question, but even for those that quote unquote succeed because they stay in business at what cost? I mean, the people, you know, there are a few Oregon Elmers is one that's an actual franchise or that's in Oregon, but the vast majority of these, the franchisees are the Oregonians. They're the Oregon small business owners. And to what, you know, to what expense are they, you know, their franchises succeeding? Like, I mean, living on razor thin margins, not being able to, you know, even when they want to maybe pay better wages to their employees and give a living wage, being unable to because the margins are so thin and they themselves not being able to have, you know, kind of a you know robust lifestyle as well. So I think that, you know, it's not just success or failure in terms of what goes out of business, but but is there, you know, things in this bill that we could do to actually make Oregon small business owners more successful, you know, in, in sense of, you know, not going out of business or not, but actually, you know, being more profitable in their businesses, because, you know, obviously that's, that's what we want for Oregonians. I'd love, you know, with something like this, we would be, the, you know, the greatest state, I think, in which to be a franchisee, in which to, you know, to be these these small business owners in Oregon. So, Representative Nose. Yes, uh, Mr. Brown. My question is, what? Thank you, Mr. Chair. My question is, what is the average profit margin, or what is the profit margin that can be expected for these the people that buy a franchise? You know, if they're successful under these systems, what is the margin that their business might make? depends on the system. I mean, as, as I alluded to earlier, franchising runs across our entire economy. So, you know, it, with that question, it'd be, it'd be akin to saying, you know, what's the average profit margin of any small business? Well, it really depends on the business. It depends on, are you operating, you know, a senior care facility? Are you offering a fast food restaurant? Are you offering a quick service restaurant? Are you are you operating a home-based business? Um, a lot of it not only depends on the type of business, it depends on the structure of the business, it depends on who your customers is. So it's really, that's really an impossible question um, to, to accurately answer. I think, uh, you know, you can go through sectors of franchising and, and sometimes figure that out. I don't, I don't know those numbers uh, off the top of my head, but I think generally what most, um, what most people or most smart people do when they buy a franchise is they figure out themselves or they figure out who their representation as they, as they look through what's called a franchise disclosure document. So every single franchise 
um, he, prior to purchasing a franchise under under federal law, has to be provided with a franchise disclosure document, which contains 23 mandated items. Okay, and really, that's a description of the franchise and provides a lot of history of the franchise. Sometimes provides. Uh, financial representations via item 19, which is financial disclosures. However, those are, those, there's a lot of controversy around those because a lot of franchisors, when they provide those representations, make it appear as though it's a representation over a whole system, when in fact, it's really a small representation over a certain number of the franchisees. So again, as, as with most things, the devil's in the details, and you gotta really look at, you gotta really look at the fine print. But I think for the most part, when franchisees, at least in my experience, when they're buying a business, certainly one of the things I cover with them, and I work with their accountants and other representatives on, is when you're gonna make this investment in the business, when do you hope to get that back? And when do you hope to really start profiting and doing a doing an analysis of that? But again, that all depends on 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 the business that you're operating. And I think to uh, to Representative Fagan's point is that these kind of um, adjustments to the Oregon uh, uh, Franchise Act, in my opinion, are, are just really uh, basic common sense adjustments. Like there are, I mean, I'm dealing with a, a franchise litigation case right now that's against a very, very large franchisor, and there is a one-way fee-shifting arrangement where if the franchisor wins, they get all their attorney fees. If we win, we don't. And it's a very, very expensive proposition. Equaling that playing field from that perspective, again, seems like a common sense thing that, that, is, that is not not partisan in any way. It's just more fair across the board. Thank you, uh, Representative Hurd. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Uh, Mr. Brown, just a couple quick questions. Um, it's very interesting. What states have actually, if, if this was said before and I missed it, I apologize. What states have actually passed, not pursuing, but have passed similar legislation? Well, every, I mean, there is, uh, I think last I checked, there was about 15 states that had uh, their own state franchise statutes. Again, Indiana, um, Indiana being one of them. Um, there are, let's see, we've got, uh, I've actually got a list here. Let me see. Arkansas, California, Connecticut, Delaware, Florida, uh, Illinois, Indiana, Iowa, Maryland, Michigan, uh, let's see, Nebraska, New Jersey, New York, North Dakota, um, Oregon, Rhode Island, South Dakota, Virginia, Washington, and Wisconsin are the ones that I've seen. But every every uh, every state is a little bit different. Um, I was telling representatives speaking in Indiana, uh, when you come in, if you sell a franchise to somebody here, uh, you have to actually register it with the securities division of the Secretary of State. So you go through an entire registration process. Now, there's a couple of exemptions for that, but for the most part, franchisors that come into Indiana have to register the franchise. I don't believe that's a requirement in Oregon. I don't think there's a registration piece to it. And so really, every there's a lot of states with, or several states with uh, franchise statutes, uh, but some states have more teeth to their statutes than others. Follow up. My quick follow up was I, I heard you mention Oregon. Obviously, we haven't passed 
the legislation we're looking at right now, I'm wanting to know if there's one or two specifically that have similarities already in their state laws to what we're looking at and talking about today. I think that Indiana has certain um, similarities, uh, especially with respect to um, uh, limiting litigation, right? So in Indiana, uh, again, as I think I said earlier, um, doesn't allow for a franchise agreement to, to limit litigation. I think with respect to discriminating, uh, again, uh, similarly situated franchisees, Indiana has uh, protections for that. I think that, uh, let me see here. I know in reviewing this, there were other aspects of it um, that I know Indiana has codified as as protections, but there were certainly, you know, as an example, um, I, I don't know of a, of a state that has an opt-out provision, even though I think that there should be almost like a three-day right of rescission. Um, because again, people put down a large investments and uh, it's almost similar to uh, to in the uh, real estate market where you have, you know, the three-day right of rescission on any type of investment. But Indiana doesn't, does not have that included in it. Um, and there are, there are certainly other parts of this bill that are not included in Indiana law, but that's the best one. Indiana's probably the best, best state I can speak to. All right, thank you. That's that practice here. Thank you. Other questions? Representative Widener. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Josh, I'm just I'm kind of curious here because franchises have been around a long time, and I know there's places you can see which franchises fail the most and things like that. I'm just trying to figure out how Oregon passing making kind of a bill of rights law would do ourselves any good because we're such a small player in the market industry. Would not some franchisers or franchisees consider possibly pulling out of the state and just not not want to locate here if we did this, if they have a good system in place? Could this actually cause franchisors to say, you know what, we're going to work in every state but Oregon because they're only 1% of the market? Uh, I've not experienced that, and again, the type of the type of protections that I think are being advocated here are not protections that are going to fundamentally upend um, the business or the standardization process. Nobody is, uh, I think, disputing the fact that a franchisor has to have the ability to operate its business, and it's it's actually selling its own its own standards. I think that, as with uh, most things in business, it, it's market driven, and I think if my experience with franchisors is they look to expand in markets which in which they think their business is going to have the best opportunity for success um, and i think there may or may not be oregon may or may not be the place for certain franchisors but my experience is the decision is going to be based off of market factors and not off of legal factors such as these kind of statutes i follow up follow up. Thank you, Mr. Chair. My point is, Josh, though, if, say, we had somebody who wanted to be a franchisee here in the state of Oregon, they reach out to some of these places, they might say no to them just because we passed this franchisee bill of rights here in Oregon that it appears no other state has. And they might tell them no. Could, that possi could we create that scenario? That's what I was getting at. 
Yeah, I mean, it's hard for me to comment on that because there's there's nothing to to base that off of. I don't I don't necessarily um, see that happening again. I think the the vast majority of good franchise systems, and and I know sometimes in these kind of discussions it can be painted as a franchisor versus franchisees. It's not always like that, and I think the best franchisors would actually appreciate the fact that they're franchisees are better protected and would appreciate the fact that there are more uh that, that it's more fair from certain basic basic uh perceptions and levels so certainly could that possibly happen because oregon is would be the first of its kind absolutely i mean it, it could happen there's a lot of things that could happen i i don't necessarily believe that it would happen <laughs> Thank you uh, very much for your testimony, Mr. Brown. We're going to move on with some others to testify. You're welcome to stay on the line if you would like to listen, or you can uh, disembark if you wish as well. Thank you. Uh, I'll be happy to stay on the line. Thanks for being with us today on the Franchise Euphoria podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to go to iTunes and provide a review. Also, please remember that although Josh Brown is a licensed and practicing attorney, nothing contained in this podcast should be construed as legal advice, because it is not. The information contained in this podcast is general and educational in nature, and none of it should be relied upon as legal advice. That being said, if you have questions for Josh and would like to contact him, please email him at josh at franchiseuphoria.com. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope you tune in to our next weekly episode.